We have an in incredible opportunity on our, the first Sunday of October. We're going to do an NFL seven-week emphasis where we're going to sort of push what we've been doing so far, no one forgotten or lost for seven weeks, beginning the first week of October. So be looking for that. It's going to be an opportunity for us to reconnect and and to reinvest in people that somehow over the summer have sort of fallen out by the wayside and there are hundreds of us who have done that and it just need a little bit of encouragement and I hope that you'll join us in that. I sent a letter this week to all of the, the uh, life group leaders and uh, we're revving up. We have about three weeks to get ready for that. We have a high attendance in life group coming up at the end of this month so there's a lot of cool things. So uh, let me just invite you just to participate with us and join us in encouraging one another as we see the day of the Lord approaching because I'm convinced that all people need is a little bit of encouragement from you or from me or from us and it'll make all the difference in the world. So speaking of encouragement, today's message is about patience. It's about patience. How many of you would say, I am a patient person? Anybody lie? Doug? Jill, why did he raise his hand? Who's in your life group anyway? I cannot believe that some of you raise your hand. You know, if you say that you are good at patience, then, wow, you're close to perfection. How many of you would say, I am an impatient person? Honestly, I confess, every hand should go up. Come on. Well, if you're a teacher today, you know all about the struggle for patience. Did you hear about the teacher who was helping one of her kindergarten children put on his boots? She noticed as they were leaving for class that day, and winter had struck pretty quickly, and so the children were bundling up to go home, and she noticed that little Johnny was over in the corner struggling as hard as he might to be able to put on his winter boots because the snow had fallen, and no matter how hard he tried, he just could not seem to get the boots on. So she did what any teacher would do as she was asked, to help, she went over to help little Johnny put on his boots. And after struggling for quite some time, her and him pushing, they finally, finally, with a lot of effort, got the boots on. And as soon as they got the boots on, she almost whimpered when the little boy Johnny said, Teacher, they're on the wrong feet. She looked, and sure enough, they were on the wrong feet. It wasn't any easier pulling now the hard-to-get-on boots off to swap the boots and put them back onto the right feet this time. And after lots of straining and pulling and pushing on both of their parts, they finally got both of the boots on. And sure enough, as soon as that happened, she heard little Johnny announce, these are not my boots. She bit her tongue. Rather than get right into his face and scream, why didn't you say that to begin with? You ever wanted to do that? She bit her tongue, didn't say anything, and once again, they pushed and they pulled for what seemed like forever, and they finally got the boots off. When he said, they're my brother's boots, my mom made me wear them today. She didn't know what to do. Should she laugh? Should she cry? Should she scream? 
But she mustered up the grace and the courage and decided that she would once again wrestle the boots back onto the boy's feet, and so they did. And as she pulled and he pushed with great effort, they finally, finally got the boots on. And as little Johnny was putting his coat on, began to look in his pockets for his mittens, and she said, now, where are your mittens? To which he said, I stuffed them in the toes of my boots. I read that about 9 o'clock last night, and I couldn't stop laughing. I don't know, it was because I went to the ladies' retreat and was up for more hours than I needed to be this weekend or what. But, you know, all of us struggle with patience, especially when it comes to human beings, because of the human factor. We often have the best intentions in dealing with each other, and we seek to fulfill and, you know, to implement those best of intentions, but... Irregardless of the best of intentions, we find ourselves sometimes between that rock and that hard place where we're struggling between patience and impatience. And there are times, because of the human factor, we have a tendency to lose patience. But let's take it a notch higher. Have you ever gotten impatient with God? Ever gotten impatient with God? Come on. Have you ever gotten impatient with God? I know I have. And every hand in this room should have gone up. Because whether we want to admit it or not, I think there are times in our lives when we get a little impatient with God because God has not fulfilled our expectations. He has not fulfilled our anticipations. We have anticipated, expected God to fulfill that which he promised in his word. And we are holding God accountable to fulfilling that word. And as we wait on God, we wait on God and we wait on God and we wait on God and we cry out to God for the fulfillment of what he has promised in his word only only to receive sometimes silence from God. It's almost as if God doesn't say a word to us. And there's this silent period as we wait on God. And in that silence, there comes over us a desperation to seek to grab the steering wheel, so to speak, and to sit in the driver's seat and to make something happen rather than wait on God. And that's when wrong seems right. When we get to that place and that stage in which we're waiting on God to fulfill his word or to accomplish some task or to make some promise happen, when we stop waiting on God, we then sort of rationally come to terms with this waiting period and we conclude falsely that something wrong seems right because we often have a tendency to believe that the end justifies the means. The end never justifies the means. And we see in this text, in Genesis chapter 16, where Abram and Sarai come to a conclusion that is a false conclusion. And in their conclusion, they think that the end justifies the means. They know what God has promised. He has promised an heir. He has told Abram and Sarai that through them, all of Israel and all of the universe will be blessed through their seed. And they're waiting on God to fulfill that promise. And in their waiting period, they get tired of waiting on God. They stop waiting on him. And they then say, well, this is the end. This is what God has promised. So let's do something in the meantime to accomplish what God has promised he would fulfill. And so the means, even though it's wrong, seems to be right because they are justifying because, hey, we're doing God's will. 
And God says the means do not justify the end, no matter how good we may think we want to define it. We've all done that. And so here we see in this text in Genesis chapter 16, this interesting, insightful passage on when wrong seems right. There are six principles that I want us to study together this morning. First of all, when wrong seems right, we focus on waiting on God. Wrong seems right when we focus on waiting on God. Notice the text in verse 1. Now, as we look at this, I want you to understand as we read it that Sarah, or Sarai is focused on her infertility. That's all she can see. That's the only thing in her sight. That's the only thing on her mind. That's the only thing in her heart is her infertility. She knows and understands the promise of God and that the, the, the seed of that promise is going to come through her. And she is so focused upon that, she can't see anything else. She cannot feel anything else, much less God. Verse 1, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Interesting that Moses, led of the Spirit, writes, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. That word that starts off in the English translation of this text says, Now. That's the problem with waiting on God. It's the now. We want it now. We live today in an instant culture that instantly gratifies our every need and we get it now. I remember when I first came to the U.S. from Brazil after being gone for a long period of time, I had never seen an automatic Coke machine where you put in a quarter and you get out something cold to drink. Instant gratification. It was amazing. It cost me a dollar to get four drinks out of which I can drink because I just watched, I like to watch it drop when I was a kid. I was 13 years old. I, I don't remember ever seeing a Coke machine. Sarah wanted it now. She was tired of waiting on God. Here we see the longing in her heart, and she longed for God to fulfill his promise now. She was not going to wait any longer, and you've been there. God, I'm in the now. I want it to happen now. And now Sarai, he identifies the one who is getting impatient. Sarah is growing impatient. It's not Abram. It's Sarah. It's all on her. Because somehow she has concluded that the reason why they have not had a child up to now is her fault. That's a false assumption. That is a presumption that is not based upon reality. But somehow Sarah now believes, as Abram's wife, that she has not borne him any children. I'm convinced that when God promised that through his seed there would be nations that would be blessed, she believed that she would bear a child. And they started 10 years ago. They started to try to conceive the natural way. And with every attempt to conceive in the natural way, there was disappointment each and every time. Her and Abram had been trying to have a child in their senior adult years, and every attempt has failed. And now Sarah, Abram's wife, has borne no children, and she is tired of waiting on God. And that's all she can focus on, the now. In chapter 16, verse 3 in the first part, 
We learn then not just the longing of her heart, but the length of her waiting. How long has she been waiting? Notice God through Abram says, so after Abram had lived how long? Ten years in the land of Canaan. How long has she been waiting on God? Ten years. It's a long time. With that kind of pressure mounting, with that kind of anxiety having to deal with each and every day. And the longer it went, the more anxious she become, became, the more nervous she became, the more tense she became, and the more focused she became on the fact that she, in her shame, is not able to bear a child naturally. And she must be the laughing stock of her family and her peers. And the talk of every fireplace chit-chat in the late of the evening while they talk about the inability for Sarah to bear Abram the promise of God. How long have you been waiting on God? When we focus, when we focus only on what we're waiting for and shift our focus away from God and his timing, everything then takes a whole different spin and we wind up thinking that what's right is right when in reality it's wrong and we, 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 we move in the wrong direction. And that's where it started with them and I think that's where it starts every time when we focus on waiting for God to act. God is not inactive. He's being very active in this waiting period. She can't just see the activity of God. They can't feel the activity of God. They can't hear and understand why would God be waiting this long to fulfill the promise. So we see that they focused on waiting for God rather than on God. Secondly, the second step is that when, when wrong seems right, we force the ways of God. There's a force that's about to take effect and they're going to force the ways of God. They know God's ways. God's saying, my way is that you, Abram, and you, Sarai, are going to have a son. That's the way in which I'm going to work in you and through you. That's the way I'm going to work. And they just can't seem how that way is going to be possible. And in the delay, the longer the delay, the longer the impossibility. And the more they try, the more the impossibility. So at some point they say, well, okay, I know which way God's going to go, but how can I get there? And so in order to wait on God, God for his ways to be fulfilled, they seek to force the way of God to make it happen. They push beyond the limits of what God intends. Notice in verse 1, the second part, she, Sarah, had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. She, Sarah, had a female Egyptian servant. Where did this Egyptian female servant come from? Remember, as we studied a couple of Sundays ago, when Abram was disobedient to God, he put his trust in Egypt rather than his trust in God. And when a famine hit Canaan, where did he go? He ran down to Egypt where he heard there was food. And he, he stepped outside of the will of God. And when he arrived in Egypt, he realized that Pharaoh was going to want his wife for himself and more than likely would cause harm upon him and seize his wife. So when they got there and he met some of Pharaoh's men, he lied about his wife because she was so incredibly good looking 
And most every, every man in here should have a wife in which you feel the same way. Amen? Come on, guys. Amen? A little bit stronger. That's, I think that's a wife who said that. Anyway. He better lie about her. And he did. And word got back to Pharaoh, and he sent men, and he took her into his home, and he gave Abram all kinds of wealth and riches in exchange as a dowry for what he believed to be Abram's sister, when in fact it was his wife. And when he took her into his home, a plague hit his house, and what did he do? An unbelieving king heard and understood that she was not his sister. She was in fact his wife, and Abram's God was inflicting punishment upon him, and he must return Abram's wife back to Abram, or no telling what would happen. He sends her back, and he kicks them out of Egypt. And as they are, she is sent back, and they are kicked out of Egypt, what happens is Sarah has gotten used to having Hagar as a servant in the house of the Pharaoh Egyptian. And that's part of the wealth. And we talked about already that the wealth that he gained in Egypt eventually is going to become a burden. And it had become a burden because remember when he rescued Lot and he had all that wealth, he was afraid that now as with this incredible wealth that he had been given in Egypt and with the spoils that he collected from the victory, that now he would come under attack so that they would then get, you know, when you have a lot, you worry a lot. I had a friend of mine said, it's better to have rich friends than be rich yourself. His philosophy was because rich people worry about their wealth. If you know somebody that's wealthy, you can have access to the wealth without all the worry. Sound like a pretty good philosophy to me. And that, that, that wealth caused him pain, but also part of that wealth was this, this woman, this Egyptian servant that all of a sudden Sarah, when she went into Pharaoh's house, had grown accustomed to. And she didn't want to let her go. And she took Hagar with her when she was returned back to her husband. And when they were kicked out of Egypt, she took Hagar with them to Canaan, the promised land. An unbelieving Egyptian woman who was now a servant. I'm convinced that this woman was planted in, 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 in this family for the specific purpose of testing this marriage. Isn't it interesting how often one sin opens the doorways to other sin? Had he not sinned and gone to Egypt, Hagar would have never been a temptation to be a substitute for the promise of God. But this one sin of going to Egypt and taking the spoils that he didn't deserve back to Canaan opened another doorway for another temptation, for another avenue that was never the design nor the intention of God. Be careful of luxury. Be weary of wealth. And I know most of you say, I don't really think I have much wealth. But in compared to the rest of the world, we are incredibly wealthy people. And so they're forcing the ways of God because Sarah, as she's focused on her infertility, turns now her attention toward Hagar. And she says, I know how I can make the way of God possible. I'm going to use this pagan, idolatrous, unbelieving woman, Hagar, my slave servant, as the avenue by which God is going to grant us his will. Do you see the stretch? It's, it, that's a huge step in the wrong direction. And we sit here today knowing the end result, thinking, how could she 
conclude this? How could this happen? And yet it does. And she's seeking to force now the hand of God to, to, to complete the ways of God through Hagar. And so here we have the process, a focus on waiting for God, now a force that will move them toward the way of God, the means justifying the end. Now number three, notice wrong seems right when we forego the word of God. There was a word that God had given Abram ten years ago. That he, through the seed of him and his wife, would have the blessing of God in an heir. That would not only bless him and his descendants would be as numerous as the stars, but eventually be a blessing to all nations. God had given him a word. And in that word, notice how they completely forget and cast aside the word of God. And in order to understand, let me just jump real quick back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we studied a long time ago. Follow along with me for just a minute. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and God put them together, Adam and Eve? And, and, and remember Genesis chapter 2, though, when he made Adam for Eve and Eve for Adam? What did he say? He said that man should leave his father and mother and the two shall what? Become one, but he said more than just become one, the two shall cling to each other. God never, ever, ever in his sovereign will or his word ever said that polygamy was a part of his plan. In nowhere does he say that. And I believe our nation is headed toward polygamy. We now have same-sex marriage. We're headed toward polygamy. It's already in the works. It's going to happen. I said, well, it never happened in the U.S. Really? Same-sex marriage we thought would never happen either. Polygamy is never in the Bible. It's never part of the Word of God or the will of God or the ways of God for their life. And here we see that man and woman are to leave and they are to cleave to each other as one flesh. One man, one woman, totally committed to each other for life. That's the word that... Abram already knew and he already had. God had promised that through your seed, I'm going to bless the nations. And he should have connected the dots, should have known back in Genesis where God said, because remember, Abram was a man of faith. So was his father and the father before him. And he already gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Not that I got it right that time, didn't I? How many of you remember that I messed up last Sunday? I said Belteshazzar. Some of you were asleep. Anyway, he gave a tenth of his, and he got the blessing from God. Now, now follow along with that thought. Notice verse 2. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Sarah presents a rational argument. She goes to her husband and notice as she presents this rational argument, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Who is she blaming? The Lord. The Lord is the one who promised and now she presents this rational argument. I've not had a child in 10 years, so therefore it must be the Lord who has prevented me from having it because Abram, you and I have been trying almost 
weekly to have a child, and it hasn't happened. So the only reason and the only way I can understand and come to a conclusion, a rational conclusion or a rational summon, that God is the one who is preventing us from having children. And I think partially she's right because it's not time for them to have children yet. And so God's not giving them a child because it's not in his will yet. It's going to be, but not in their time frame, in his time frame. So partially she's right, but partially she's wrong. And she's coming to her husband and she's blaming the Lord on her infertility. And we, as men, listen to rational arguments. And here we see Sarah presents a rational argument, but Sarah also proposes a reasonable arrangement. Notice what she presents as an arrangement. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, as you read this, don't overlook the words shall be. She honestly, somehow, has concluded rationally in her mind and in her heart that this may be, this shall be a way she is assuming that this is possibly the way, the means by which God's going to fulfill his promise. This is how God's going to do it. Through, through this, this servant that I have, this, this, this slave girl from Egypt. And then notice what happens. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Sarah's proposition had a receptive accomplice. Abram now listens to his wife, and he becomes an accomplice to the sin. It's, 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 it's mind-boggling, isn't it? They are completely foregoing what God has said in Genesis already, and they know what the Word of God says in regard to marriage. They know that it's not God's will for polygamy. And even though the culture that they live in has accepted polygamy and have have long since practiced this, all of the sons of Noah, remember they're the only ones left, the sons of Noah begin to split off in other little tribes, and many of them forgot God. And in forgetting God, they had polygamous marriages. And so the culture and the custom of the day was for a man to have multiple wives. Abram and Sarah did not have multiple relationships. Just Abram and Sarah. Why? Because they were followers of Jehovah. But Sarah now is beginning to be pressured by the cultural around her, thinking just maybe I can embrace a pagan practice by a pagan culture to accomplish the plans and the will of God. That's a stretch, isn't it? And we as believers today are being forced, literally, by the culture around us to embrace their standard and their way of living rather than embrace the standard and the living by God's standard, aren't we? And Sarah seems to think that what they're doing is right because they're completely ignoring what the word of God has already said and mandated. And it's interesting that Abram listened to her. Now, guys, I know that sometimes we pretend to listen to our wives, but they know when we're not. Right, ladies? Right, ladies? This is the time to do this to your husband. And if you can't, throw something at him. He listened. He listened. 
He not just saw a mouth moving and heard no words, guys. He agreed with her rational way of thinking. And he agreed that that's how they would proceed. Wrong seems right when we not only focus on the waiting for God, force the ways of God, forego the word of God, but when we forsake the will of God. For when you cast aside the word of God, the next step and the final step, the disaster and the consequences, is completely forsaking the will of God because the word of God is no longer directing and steering your life. And now you're out here doing whatever you think feels good and is going to accomplish what you believe is right. And you're just doing whatever is right in your own eyes and whatever you believe is going to accomplish something. And, and even though if you think what you're seeing to accomplish is good, but the means is completely wrong, then everything else is going to be wrong and you're going to be stepping outside of the will of God for your life. And that's what they do. For notice in the, in the next part of verse 3, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant. Here's the strategy is being implemented. Sarah, Abram's wife. Now, it's interesting that Moses clearly lays out exactly the right standard. Sarah, who is Abram's wife, who has no right nor any purpose in doing this, should never have done this. Sarah, who is in reality Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant. Now look at that word took. I don't know about you, but that doesn't mean that that, that means to me that, that Hagar is not really willing to go. She, she's not a part of the scheme. She's not been a part of the strategy sessions. She's not volunteered for the job. She's being voluntold for the job. She's a servant. She's a slave. She has no rights. And she is to do whatever her mistress says that she is to do. And she is taken literally by force. And the strategy is implemented. Now notice the stage is being set. And Hagar was then given to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Notice, and she, Sarai, gave her Hagar to Abram, her husband, the husband of Sarah, not Hagar. It, it, he is Sarah's husband, not Hagar's. But it's Sarah who takes her into her husband and literally gives her to Abram. How perverted this is. And the stage is set now. He is in his bedroom awaiting for the arrival of now this slave woman who he's going to sleep with so that they can conceive a child. And the wife brings the woman in and presents her to him. And notice the sin is conceived. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. The sin is now conceived. And the will of God has not been done. It's, in fact, been broken. It kind of reminds me of Adam and Eve, doesn't it? Eve is the one who went into the garden. It was Eve who went in there and had the conversation with, with, with Satan. But, but, but Adam was there the whole time. We've already seen that early on in our study of Genesis. He wasn't off in the field doing something else or on a hunt or, or maybe planning and collecting some food. He was with her while she was being tempted. And the whole time of the conversation between Eve and Satan is going on, he is remaining silent. And he says absolutely nothing. And she's the one who goes up, plucks the fruit, and hands it to her husband. And he then willingly receives it. 
and says nothing and becomes an accomplice to the sin. That's what Abram has done here. And the will of God has been broken. So here's the steps. Wrong seems right when we focus on waiting on God, when we force the ways of God, when we forego the word of God, when we forsake the will of God, but finally, when we fight the work of God. What is the work that God is doing now that the sin has been conceived and it's, it's happened? It's a thing that none of us like in this room. It's called consequences. Do you like consequences? I don't. You know, sin would be a lot easier if there were no consequences. And Satan, when he's tempting us to sin, often causes us not even to see the fact that what we do in violation to the will of God is a thing called consequences. You know, disobeying my parents was, was always fun when we were committing the act of disobedience, but the consequence of disobedience was never fun. <laughs> it was never fun. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, there's a discipline that comes when there's disobedience. And here comes the work that God is doing. It's an act of discipline. It's the consequence of their sin. In verse 4, second part, notice the consequence of their sin. And when she saw, she saw that she had conceived, this is Hagar. When Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Hagar went in, unwillingly became the victim of this sin, and upon sleeping with Abram, she is and becomes pregnant. Now, you got to understand Sarah. Sarah believes that in Hagar becoming pregnant by her husband is going to elevate her in a status, not only with God, but with her peers and herself. She's lacking esteem. She's feeling low. She's feeling, you know, badly. And, and she believes that, hey, if this lady goes in and has, you know, sex with my husband and gets pregnant, she's my slave, my servant, then I'm going to rise in, in the estimation of everybody. But instead of that happening, what happens? The complete opposite happens because Hagar doesn't hold her in high esteem. Hagar holds her in contempt. Hagar, after she recognized and realized that she was the one who was carrying the promised seed of God, elevated herself, the slave servant, and demoted her mistress and looked down upon her with contempt. <laughs> I'm the favored one. I'm carrying the seed. I'm now heir to the promise, a slave, servant, pagan, Egyptian. You're just nothing. I don't know about you, but you ever been and when two women are at it? Come on now. You better get out of the way. <laughs> All right? Notice what happens. That's the consequence for Sarah. She thought she was going to be elevated, but instead she received contempt. Did she get what she wanted? Did she get what she expected? 
Sin never does give what we anticipate, does it? There are consequences that we often don't see. She thought she was going to be elevated. Instead of elevated, she was actually demoted. And that was the consequence of her sin. She is now being seen by not only Hagar, but everyone in her family. And she believes also from her own husband that now they all have contempt for her. Rather than elevating her to a, to a, to a status that she thought she deserved. Verse 5, And Sarah said to Abram, Notice the confession of her shame. May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. She's confessing here, I believe, her guilt and her shame for her act of disobedience to God. I think there's somewhat of a remorse and some act of repentance on Sarah's part because she's feeling shame. She's feeling contempt. She's feeling the full brunt of the consequences of her sin. She wasn't elevated. She was brought down. And there's a sense of confession of her shame. Now look at that one sentence after that though. Notice the call for justice. May the Lord judge between you and me. Who's she putting all the blame on? Abram. Come on guys. You know where we're going with this? Who's to blame? The spiritual leader of the family. Abram should have stood up a long time ago in the discussion and said, no way, Sarah, this isn't going to happen. We have a word from the Lord when he first introduced marriage and the family that a husband and wife is to forsake each other and cling to each other and to be one flesh. Polygamy is not the will of God, but he remained silent. Not only remained silent, but he agreed to her scheme and he participated in it. And now the shame has come upon his wife and she comes to him and she is wanting to cast all the blame on him. And that's exactly, I think, sometimes what happens to us when we feel the full brunt of our consequence of our sin. We want to look for a scapegoat and blame someone else for what's happening to us when, all, when in reality, Sarah was just as much to blame as he was. True, he should have spoken up and been the spiritual leader that God intended for him to be in the family. And he kept silent, but she too had the same knowledge and the same understanding. And some of the responsibility is for her to bear as well. But she wants to put all of the blame on Abram. And she thinks that maybe Abram had something to do with the contempt that she is receiving from Hagar. And maybe she's right. Because maybe Abram, when he heard that she was pregnant in his heart, elevated Hagar above his wife. But notice then the cowardice of Abram. Again, a second time, he's a coward. He doesn't stand up. Verse 6, and Abram said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. Is that true? Not really. She's in God's power. Do to her as you please. What a coward. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Consequences, consequences to sin are a part of the activity of God. God was not asleep. God did not take a hiatus. He wasn't on vacation. 
God was still at work even in their period of waiting. But then when they took the steering wheel and forced the hand of God and did something outside of the will of God, God was still now acting in their circumstance through a consequence that was brought upon by sin in their lives. Consequences are part of the activity of God. And the reason why there are consequences is because God is working in your life and he's working in my life. He works in our lives through consequences to draw us back into him in repentance and reconciliation. So if you today have in your own will superseded the will of God and denied the word of God and done something that you know now makes you a recipient of the consequence of God, those consequences are a reminder of the grace of God in your life and that God is working through that consequence to draw you closer to him. And lastly, notice all the way down to verse 16. We're going to come to the verses 7 through 15 next week, which I think I had prepared a study on Wednesday night that I wanted to do, and I I liked it so much. We're going to come back to this chapter next Sunday and talk about Hagar. (laughs) Because Hagar is a victim. And she has an understanding of God where she says this beautiful statement, you're the God who sees. That is a beautiful statement, and we're going to look at that next week. The God who sees us in our pain. He's not an absentee landlord. He knows when, his, when, when humans are in pain, and he came to Hagar's aid, and he'll come to you. But this is what happened. She, she felt the pressure, and she runs out into the desert. And an angel of the Lord comes to her, and he speaks into her life. This pagan, unbelieving, Egyptian slave servant of a godly woman. And he speaks into her life. And she returns back to Abram and Sarah. She returns back to Abram and Sarah. And when she comes back to Abram and Sarah, she testifies, I believe, of the encounter that she had with a messenger of the Lord. And they receive her witness. They hear her witness, they receive it. Because if you notice in the text, and Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael, the God who hears. That's what Ishmael means, the God who hears. I don't know about you, but that tells me that Abram recognized the activity of God On this circumstance, on this situation, he spoke into this Egyptian, pagan, unbelieving woman's life. She saw the reality of who God was, and he now, for her and for Abram, was the God who hears the cry of the broken, of the wounded, of the dejected. The God who hears. And Ishmael, for 16 years... For 16 years was raised in that home with all that tension. 16 years. I don't know about you, but that's a long time. And Ishmael, everywhere he went, the God who hears, was a constant reminder to Abram, to Sarah, and to Hagar of what happened. It was impossible for them to deny the reality of their sin because Ishmael was standing there at the breakfast table, at the lunch table, at the dinner table, out in the yard 
on vacation. He was everywhere, always constantly reminding them and being a witness of the incredible grace of God on their sin and on their lives. That was Ishmael, a reminder of God's grace on their sin. And so I think that there are times as we close with this thought that the scars that you have in your life right now from mistakes that you've made in your past, those scars, come on, those scars that you have that often you try to cover up and deny and, and forget, tragic mistakes and sins that you've made, things that have been hurtful and harmful, they've been, you've denied the word of God and stepped out of the will of God and you've taken the bull by the horns and the steering wheel and you've done what you wanted to do rather than what God and their consequences, those scars, those consequences are a constant reminder of the grace of God in your life like Ishmael was. And we shouldn't seek to cover up those scars. We should be willing to expose those scars not because we want to broadcast or announce our sin, but so that we can celebrate the immeasurable, the incredible, the most wonderful grace that we could ever receive through the witness of those scars. Because were it not for those scars, you would never fully understand the grace of a kind, good, and loving God. So real quickly, let's close. Let's, let's look at some real quick things. Note, how do I wait on the Lord? Wait patiently. Wait patiently. Wait patiently. How patient should I be? As long as it takes. It's an interesting passage. It says in Psalms 37, 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Wait patiently. Here's a hard one. Wait quietly. Stop your talking. Stop your chatter. Stop your complaining. Stop your whining. Wait quietly. The psalmist says, Psalm 62, 5, O God alone, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence for your hope is from him. Wait in silence. Wait quietly. Shut up. And wait quietly. Number three, which is not there, wait courageously. Wait courageously on the Lord. Psalms 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. It takes courage to wait for the Lord. Number four, wait expectantly. Psalms 130, 5 through 6, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. He is anticipating, expecting that as he waits on God, God is going to fulfill what he has promised. God's going to fulfill his word. God's going to accomplish his will, and God's ways will become reality if we wait on the Lord. Wait faithfully, Psalms 37, 4. Wait for the Lord and keep his ways, and he will exalt you to inherit the land you will look on when the wicked are cut off. Wait for the Lord and keep his ways. Don't step outside of the will of God for your life. Be faithful 
while you wait on God. The temptation is to step out outside of the will of God and to grab the bull by the horns and to take the driver's seat and to take the steering wheel and make something happen. Because the reality is that Abram and Sarah can only see the fulfillment of what God has promised through the miraculous divine intervention of a sovereign God who could defy their age limitations, their human limitations, and make what he promised happen. Only God could do that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will direct your path. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Psalms 38:15 but for you O Lord do I wait it is you Lord my God who will answer in whom will an- who, in whom are we looking to who will answer who will make it possible who fulfills his word who accomplishes his will who who the Lord the Lord I don't know what you're waiting on today Chances are you're waiting on something that only God can do. How long must you wait? Until God does it. His timetable is not your timetable. His ways are not often your ways. Your thoughts are not always His thoughts. And we must be very careful while we wait on the Lord. To wait rightly for the Lord to intervene and to accomplish his will in his way for his glory and his purpose. My encouragement to you today is wait on the Lord. Let's pray. Again, this morning, we get to celebrate Believer's Baptism. And this is my friend, Avery. And if you're part of Avery's family, life group, or a friend of his that have come to join him in celebrating this morning, would you stand? Avery, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your Savior and your boss? Yes. And are you ready to follow him for the rest of your life? Yes. 
because of that decision. It's my privilege to get to baptize you this morning in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life. <laughs>